Thank you, Ray. Each Sunday we'll be having an elder pray uh, to bring us together corporately to the throne of grace, and I trust that you'll be strengthened in it, both as a model prayer, but also the fruit of that prayer. You know, there are some substitutes in life that we can get by. When I was a kid, margarine came on the scene, butter, margarine. It really didn't matter. There are other things that cannot be substituted as easily without detrimental effect. Um, I remember reading a story about in Africa on the black market. Uh, There was this kind of a milky white substance that was often used uh, for a high price that uh, at least was sold as penicillin. It wasn't penicillin, and so the people that took it uh, paid a lot of money to get what they thought would help their child, and, and of course it was a false substitute. It was a fake. It didn't help at all. Um, it, likewise, when you talk about the nature of the church and her worship, there are a lot of substitutes for worship. Churches do worship really different in a, in a lot of contexts, and um, we want to be mindful to make sure that our worship here is right, that it's Godward, that it's edifying to you. You know, if you were to imagine with me for a minute, what would it be like if Jesus Christ came here to worship with us? I mean, we're going to read about him coming into the temple. So what would it be like if he came here? What would he say? What criteria would he use to discern? Are we doing it rightly or not? Is this like a false substitute? Is this the real deal? Well, you know, in in Matthew 21, Jesus is going to enter Jerusalem. And I want you to know that oftentimes you see in the earlier part of the Gospels, Jesus saying, um, telling people, hey, don't say, don't tell anybody who I am. We call it the Messianic secret, that Jesus was kind of preventing people from blasting out about who he was. Well, the Messianic secret is now over. Jesus is coming with full desire to proclaim himself to be the Messiah as he enters Jerusalem. In in fact, he's going to come on a donkey. Now, Jesus' entrance, his final entrance into into Jerusalem was calculated and it was intentional that they would see, I am proclaiming myself to be the Messiah, the Savior of the world. That's what he's doing, and that's why he rode on the donkey. In fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9, it says, Behold, your king, humble and mounted on a donkey. And so he rode in on that donkey, and the people were waving the palm branches, and they were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So they were getting at least part of the message. Okay, then as he enters into Jerusalem, he immediately goes into the temple. And this is where our story picks up. Because Jesus as king is now setting up his reign, and he's beginning in the house of God. He's beginning in the temple. And Jesus is coming to do two things. I want you to just consider two things in your mind today. One, he's coming to purify the false worship that was taking place in that temple. He wants to purify that which had grown in error. And then he wants to rectify, he wants to restore, he wants to establish what a right worship is. And those are the two directions we're going in this morning, to purify and to rectify. So turn with me, if you will, to Matthew 21. We'll look at verses 12 through 17. Matthew 21, we read, as Matthew has recorded for us, and Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. He overturned the tables of money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. 
But when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Okay, so let me try to blow this out a little bit more for you. Let me try to explain it. So Jesus is coming to purify the temple. Now, uh, Jesus comes into the temple. He sees the deplorable spiritual state of Israel by their worship. In other words, he looks at their worship, and, and he's able to see their spiritual condition. Now, this isn't the first time, by the way, Jesus came into the temple. In John chapter 2, Jesus came into the temple at the beginning of his ministry, and he cleaned house then, even with a quart of whips. Well, now we're three years later. Bad habits are hard to change. Things haven't changed. He re-enters the temple, and he sees this condition, and he brings about a judgment on it. Now, now here's the scene. When he comes into the temple, Matthew just records, and Jesus entered the temple. The temple area was massive. It, it, it had in the middle the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies was a, an area where the high priest would take in the blood of a lamb to atone for the sins of people. He'd only go in there once a year, but it was ground zero for the temple. It was the critical area where God would meet, where God would dispense mercy because of the blood of the lamb. And then outside that area, there was a court. There were actually four courts. The first court around the Holy of Holies was called the court of the priests. This is where the priests went and worked. They, 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 this is where they sacrificed the animals. They brought the sacrifices to the, to the altar to be burned. And then outside that court would be another court, the court of Israel, the court of men. That's where the men could go. They couldn't go any further if they were a layman. And then the next court was the court of women. It was where women would go to worship. And then the farthest court was the court of Gentiles. It was big, it was, but it was the most outer court, and it was for the Gentiles. Now, you must know that the name for Gentiles is just nations. So the nations were invited to gather on the outskirts of the temple to seek God. So here's what God's intention was. He called Abraham, and he appointed him to be head over a people, Israel. And God was going to bless Israel so that Israel might live in such a manner that they would display and declare God's immense glory. And the nations would see Israel, and they would see their God, and they would come to worship and to seek God. That was the intention. Of course, they didn't do that well. But that was God's intention. So when Jesus walks into this court, or this temple, he's walking into the court of the Gentiles. Now, what had happened, instead of this being a place of prayer for the nations, they had begun to set up cattle stalls and money-changing tables. So that if you could come, you could get an animal, sacrifice it at the temple. Now, before we look at them as just, what are they doing? I mean, you'd say, well, it's so obvious you shouldn't be moving animals and money-changing tables in the temple. We know it because we know the story. But, but think about this. You're a traveler. You're coming a long way. You can't bring your animals to sacrifice. It was actually a courtesy where you can buy an animal here and sacrifice. I mean, for example, if you're coming from 50 miles away and you're bringing your lamb and you're carrying it the whole way, and then you get to the temple, the priest has to inspect it to make sure it's unblemished, and let's say he finds a blemish on it. You can't sacrifice it. You've brought the animal the whole way. So it it was really an act of service that you could come, those traveling, and and you could buy an animal and then sacrifice it as the law required. Or the money-changing table is kind of the same thing. You're coming from a distant land. 
you're bringing a different type of coin. There was only one type of coin, the temple tax, the shekel that they would use. And so you're bringing a Roman coin or a Greek coin. And by the way, those coins often had images and mottos that were pagan in their nature. And it would be idolatrous to take them and use them in the temple. And so they would exchange the money so that you could fulfill your requirement to the sacrifice or to, or to pay the half-shekel temple tax that you were required to pay. So, so we, we want to think that, that, that these were practical helps. The problem that Jesus had was that they were in the temple taking place. Now, just to give you a handle on how busy it would be, Josephus was a historian, a Jewish historian, who lived around the time of Jesus, a little bit beyond, and he recorded that at Passover, there may be as many as 250,000 lambs slaughtered. 100,000 people would steam into Jerusalem. So here, you just envision the scene that Jesus is walking in. He walks into this area, this court of the Gentiles, where they're to be worshiping, and there are thousands of people coming and going, commercial transactions happening, money changing, back and forth. There would be no prayer there. I mean, there would be no way to engage God in any measure. But not only that, Jesus wasn't just saying, you got a bad location for your services here. you got some bad business. Early literature tells us they charged exorbitant rates. It's a, cap- it's a captive market. You know, the poor person couldn't afford a lamb to sacrifice, so they would often sacrifice a pigeon. Now, a pigeon would be maybe five cents in our monies. They would charge the equivalent of $4. Not only that, but the animals were blemished. Not only that, the scales were often imbalanced. And, and you also had to pay to exchange your coinage. And then to top it all off, if it didn't bad enough, it was known at least that court of Gentiles, as Annas's Bazaar. King Annas, or the high priest Annas, would dole out to certain family members the right to sell stuff there. So you had to have it an inn with the high priest to make profit in the temple. So this is what Jesus is walking into. Can't you imagine your Lord of the temple and you see this going on? His blood would be boiling. It would be boiling. I mean, money is transacted. Businesses happening, commotion, but no worship. And so look at what Jesus does. So it's with this zealousness that he comes in. And he begins driving the animals out. He's driving the buyers and the sellers out. This is a serious act. He's flipping over these, I'm sure, heavy wooden tables, laden with coins. You can just see the coins hitting the uneven pavement, just ricocheting all over the place. It would have been a disaster. And he runs them all out. But that's what he does. Look at what he says. He says, my house shall be called a house of prayer. But you have made it a den of robbers. Now, now think about this for a minute. He's saying you're robbing. Who's he robbing? Are they just robbing the unsuspecting worshipers coming? I don't think so. I think he's speaking about you're robbing God from the worship that he deserves. Do you realize, people, that God is worthy of your worship? In other words, that because he's giving you life, because he's giving you breath, because he's your creator, you in fact owe him worship. Whether you're believers or not, you owe him because he's given you everything you have. And so to not worship rightly is really to rob God. You're stealing from God. You come with poor attitudes and dispositions that are not right, judgmental spirits, angry hearts are just ambivalent to the whole thing. You're robbing God. So Jesus says, 
You've made this into a den of robbers. Now, let me remind you, this is an allusion, if you will, to um, Jeremiah 7, verse 11. And in this chapter in Jeremiah, Jeremiah is giving a sermon on the temple. And what he's doing is he's criticizing the Israelites who are coming into worship with their dishonesty, their adulteries, their idolatries, and their mistreatment of the poor. And they're coming in and they're saying, you know what, we're going to worship, so we're okay. God's going to give us prosperity. He's going to give us peace. And Jeremiah condemns it, and so does Jesus condemn it. Now, haven't you ever wondered, though, why didn't anybody stop him? Don't you ever wonder? I mean, how could one man, because I think Matthew intentionally leaves Jesus alone. There is no disciple activity with him. There are no apostles with him. He's totally alone. And I think Matthew does this because Jesus is the only one with authority to do it. And so he does it. Why doesn't anybody bother him? Why doesn't anybody put up a fight? Well, I propose to you that they saw him as some fulfillment of Malachi. Let me read Malachi to you. Malachi was the last prophet, and he prophesied about this day, at least in part. He said, And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi, or the priests. Now, you know that passage from Handel's Messiah. It definitely speaks about the final return that Jesus comes on his second return. But is there not some shade? Could the people have not have seen this may be the Messiah? He's refining the children and the Children of Levi. So when we look at this story, so Jesus is dealing with, he's purifying this worship. And we look at it, it was, how could they have fallen so off rail with worship? Then, then we start thinking about ourselves. So if Jesus were to come in here, what would he say about our worship? What would he say about the way we do church? And, and I want to kind of point out some areas that we might go off rail. And so what I want you to do, and this is what I've been praying for, I don't want you to hear Tom condemning me I do trust that the Spirit may convict you. So I'm just going to ask you some questions, and I'd like you to kind of think over the posture of your heart when you come to worship. Number one, in in terms of a right worship, uh, is our worship lacking in faith? In other words, when they came, they came with duty and obligation. They were going to do sacrifice. They're going to attend the temple. Is your worship more born out of duty and obligation? In other words, when you think of worship, do you think of ceremony? Do you think of ritual? Do you think of just simply attending church? How do you view it? Is it more of a mechanical response that you walk out? I mean, do you come with, with, do you just sing the words of the hymns, but you don't think about them? Or do you come in absolutely unprepared, just hope something is good here today? How do you come to worship? Or do you come by faith? Do you come believing, God, you will meet me through the power of your spirit here? See, many of us, I think, we don't come, we come trusting in the fact that I'm doing the right things that I'm supposed to be doing. And so that's worship. I'm here, I'm giving, maybe I'm ministering. I'm involved at some level. Is that your understanding of worship? Or, or for example, uh, is our worship lacking confession? In other words, in Jeremiah's day that Jesus was referencing, they were coming into church with their sin, and they were saying, I'm doing all right. I mean, they're okay with who they were and what they did as long as they performed the functions of worship. Do we do that? 
Are we ambivalent to how we live our lives all week long? I, I mean, do you come in to worship harboring anger, unreconciled conflict, self-righteous attitudes? Or, or do you come recognizing the sinfulness that we are, but the greatness of God and, and the mercy that we have in Christ? And so you're not morose and you're not forlorn, but you are aware of who you are, but you're also now aware of how great he is. It's a big difference when you come into the service. Or, or, or thirdly, you know, is our worship lacking a love for the nations? In other words, we don't have a court of Gentiles here. Uh, but, but I think Jesus is showing us his heart for the nations by clearing out that court of Gentiles. Folks, do we come wanting the nations to know Christ? I mean, do we come satisfied in that our little world is in order? Or do we come with more of an expansive view that we want Christ glorified by all the nations, both in our midst here, but also in the missional activity of this church? We're coming praying for that. God, may you be honored by all, not just by our little corner of Raleigh. Is our worship lacking in transcendence? In other words, do you come just thinking, I hope he's going to hit a subject that really is going to ring my bell. Or, you know, I, I hope I feel better when I leave here. You know, he's going to say something to encourage me. I remember a guy that redid our floors. He, um, he loved this one church because he just felt better about himself every time he left. Now, folks, I think you know me well enough now. I don't want you feeling bad about yourselves when you leave. Uh, I, I really don't. But I just want you thinking more about God when you leave and how great he is. And ultimately, I think that's when you do begin to feel better about who you are and because of your relationship to him. But, but some of us don't want to be pushed into the mysteries of God. We don't want to hit these more difficult areas, like I hit predestination a few weeks ago. Ah, that scares people. But this is the mystery of God. I mean, I mean this is what worship is about. It, it, it's more than just the practical day-to-day -day benefits of, knowing what, of, of being a Christian. Or is our worship lacking in fruitfulness? You know, obviously the temple activity, they were very busy. Our churches today can be very busy, but is it bearing fruit of change in our lives? You know, if you were to read verses 18 to 22, you're going to see Jesus come up and he's going to curse a fig tree. Now, I don't know of any place in Scripture where Jesus Christ curses creation again. It was cursed back in Genesis 3. There is no other cursing of creation but he curses the fig tree. Why? Because it had leaves, but no fruit. It was advertising itself as full of life, but it was producing nothing. That's what Israel was doing. They were advertising themselves as full of life. Look at our temple. It's full of activity and busyness, and yet it was giving no life to anyone. And so he curses it. See, this scene in Matthew 21, where he cleanses the temple, is a foretaste of the judgment the temple will face. In Matthew 24, Jesus is going to predict that this temple is going to be destroyed. Not one stone upon another will be left. And it happened in 70 AD. The Roman legions came in and flattened the place. Now that is a foretaste of what Christ will do one day when he comes. I know we've just gone through another end of the world date with the Mayan calendar. I get it. I think there's 183 times that people have predicted the end of the world. Well, 
there will be an end, and Christ will come, and I don't have time to go into it today, but look in Revelation chapter 6 at the end of the chapter, look at Revelation 19, and you will see Christ coming back, and it will not be humble mounted on a donkey. It will be an absolute judgment of the world. But he begins in the house of God. Did he not say to the church at Laodicea, you say that you're rich, but you're pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. We, we are wise to look at our worship. Is our worship marked by faith? Is it wor- marked by confession? Is it marked by transcendence? Is it marked by fruitfulness? Is, that, is our worship marked by those things? Are you looking for those things? I, I think we want to have a time of, of repentance and confession and consideration. If you've come in and you're angry and you're bitter and you have different issues, that's, the church is a place for that, to confess those things. But, but we want to come understanding the holy and the radical nature of God. Now, so Jesus has purified. That, that's what this cleansing is about. He's coming to purify the temple. Now he's going to rectify some things. So look back with me in this text. Beginning in, uh, in 12 and 13, he says, um, my house shall be called a house of prayer. Jesus is establishing himself, saying, this is my house now. So Jesus, as a king, is claiming ownership. He is appropriating leadership of the entire worship of Israel. He's saying, my house shall be a house of prayer. And this is a quote from Isaiah 56, 7. And, and it's coming from a chapter with, that is promising the redemption of the Gentiles. And he's saying that it's going to come through my house being a house of prayer. Let me read to you the the verse. He says, And foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants. He says, These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. So Jesus is saying this, to rectify worship, we have to be a people minimally of prayer. Now what's interesting is in the Isaiah passage, he says, my house will be a house of prayer for the nations. Matthew doesn't include that last little phrase, for the nations. I think it's because he's emphasizing the role of prayer in the church. Just, Just with me for a minute, can you imagine this scene though? Jesus had driven out all the animals, all the buyers, all the sellers, all the money changers, and it was Christ in the temple, and the lame and the blind began to come to him. It was a picture of what it really was supposed to be like. Jesus appropriating ownership of the temple. Can you imagine the sweetness of it? The prayers, the worship, the teaching. He stayed in that temple for a number of days teaching. I mean, it would be like the closest you could get to heaven, right there, before it all came back in. But, but our house, the Christian worship, is to be marked by prayer, that the child of God's language is that of prayer. In other words, when we gather, this isn't talking about your individual prayer life. I want to encourage that, and we will speak to that in Matthew chapter 6. This is a corporate prayer we're talking about, that when the church gathers, we are to be about praying with one another, for one another. When I say prayer, I don't mean just the petitions that we offer up, but I mean the praises that we give to God, the, the, the confession that we make to God, and the things that we ask from God. You know, we have that time of, of worship after the service, that time of prayer, uh, that is for us to do just this. We want to model, we want to walk in this restored style of worship that Jesus has given to us. 
And so after the word's broken for you, we have this time of five or ten minutes just to pray. This isn't a time where I'm just lifting up my personal requests, although there is a place for that. It's really a time where we're appealing to God for the benefit of the gathered church. That's us. Now, now many of you, and that's why I say pray loud, pray short. Pray loud so we can hear you and join with you. Pray short so others can pray with you. Now, when I say that, some people still pray silently and they pray long. And I'm just saying, we're trying to, that's that's what kids say to me, I'm just saying, that's all. We want to pray loud so we can hear with you as a corporate family praying and pray briefly so that others can join with. That's why Ray has started. We're going to have an elder praying every week except on Communion Sunday to give an elder prayer. Why do we do this? We're doing this so as one voice can come forth out of this body appealing to God for grace and mercy. There will be a time of recognition of God's glory. That's how we start prayer. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. We're about God and his glory. And that leads us to confession. Many of us don't confess as a regular part of your lives. You don't look at your lives. I don't look at my life and, and, and turn to God in confession, but we want to confess as a people of God. It's been part of every revival is confession. God, forgive us that we have linked ourselves up with the things of this world and we've ignored you. But, but not just confession, petition. We do have needs in this church, and we want to lift them up. We want to pray for the other churches around us. We want to pray for our country. We want to pray for our world. We're in very precarious times, and we want to pray as one voice. And so an elder is going to model it for you. You're going to join with him. As you listen, it will become your prayer. We have this three-day prayer coming up. Any member here, you should have in your box an email. And the email is going to link you to this, um, this website, which will have uh, a sign-up starting at 5 a.m. on Monday morning all the way through midnight on Wednesday. Every hour has a slot divided in half-hour increments. We're asking you to sign up for half an hour of prayer over the next three days for this year and the ministries of this church. Along with that link, you're going to see this devotional guide that we've put together for you to pray through. People have already signed up for it. The purpose of this is that we recognize our dependence before God. We as a people of God need to pray. And God, we're asking you to pray for the Sunday worship, for the ministries of this church. Last week at our family meeting, many of you were not able to stay, but we just stayed and prayed for every aspect of the ministry of this church. We gather together over the life of the church and say, God, you have to help us. Remember last week I preached on, um, in John 14, when Jesus said, Truly I say to you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I do, and greater works still, because I'm going to the Father. So the prayers are advanced by the ascension of Christ. He says, whatever you ask in my name, I'll do it, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And then Jesus says, ask me anything, and I'll do it. In other words, he's going to grant to us power to do these greater works that he's promised we're going to do, and it's going to be through prayer. So I want to encourage you that we want to be gathering as a people of prayer. We want this service to include prayer, trying to make changes toward that end. Sinclair Ferguson, many of you have heard him preach, is a Scottish preacher, theologian. He actually pastors down at uh, South Carolina in Columbia. Here's what he wrote. He was asked the question, what concerns you about modern-day Protestant Christianity? He said, there is a lack of prayer and of the church praying. This is, to me, the most alarming for this reason. We've built apparently strong, large, successful, active churches. 
but many of our churches never meet as a congregation for prayer. I mean, never. What does that indicate we are saying about the life of the church as a fellowship? By contrast, the mark of the truly apostolic spirit in the church is that we give ourselves to prayer and the word together. He says it should not surprise us that while many churches see growth, it is often simply a reconfiguration of numbers, not of conversion. I greatly wish that our churches would learn to keep the main thing central, that we would learn to be true churches, vibrant fellowships of prayer, gospel ministry, and teaching, and mutual love. And this last line struck me because of our need, our, the perception that we need to be relevant. He says, at the end of the day, such a church simply needs to be for visitors who come to sense that this is a new order of reality altogether and are drawn to Christ. In other words, the evangelism of the church is as the church is the church, not some new, fangled, innovative way to be grabbing the attention of people that aren't really interested in the gospel. So rectifying the church begins with that we involve prayer, which we're doing. Secondly, this church is to be a church of the nations, of the peoples. Now, here... Hear me on this. You notice in this scene that he clears that court of Gentiles so that Gentiles may worship. But then notice what happens. It says the lame and the blind come to him in the temple and he heals them. The lame and the blind weren't allowed in the temple. But when Jesus clears everybody out, they sense a new reality and they move in. This is part of the same chapter in Isaiah 53. He actually says, sorry, Isaiah 56, he says, Let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. In other words, that's not so in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is filled up with people of every tribe, tongue, and nation. See, Israel saw themselves as the ethnic people of God. They were Israel because of blood of Abraham. That is no longer the case. Now it's the blood of the lamb is what draws us into the family of God. That Abraham is not our father anymore. Christ is the head of the body. That's the language. That's the imagery used now. And so our church is to be a church of nationalities, of nations. Now, now that's a difficult thing for us to do. For us in this local church to be multicultural, it's hard. Why? Because we like the way things are. I mean, here I am over 50. I'm already feeling that sense of, I don't like when things are changing all the time. It's nice to have things the way they've always been. And so in a church, to move into more of a multicultural position is a challenge for us. You sing different songs. That that doesn't work well for people. You take an old hymn that we've been raised on and that we love, you set it to a new tune, it throws some people. It does. I understand. I mean, you like it the way it's been done. But to be a church of the nations, we've got to be flexible. We've got to recognize that God is glorified in a variety of things, not just the way we live or the way it was done when I was a kid. But we have to be willing, even in our age, to begin to be changeable and flexible so that this can be a church of the nations. But not just coming here, but also going out. And and we're trying to increase that in terms of our missional focus and missional zeal. So, So a rectified church. Jesus rectifying is going to be a house of prayer. It's going to be a house of the nations. And then thirdly, it's going to be a house that we treasure Christ. Look, look in verse 15 with me. It says, when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. Can you imagine this scene? So Jesus has cleared everybody out. In contrast to the indignance of these religious leaders, you hear the sound of kids singing 
phrase in Christ. So the religious leaders come up and they say, do you hear what they're saying? Do you hear what they're saying? Now Jesus, of course, they wanted to give Jesus the option because if he didn't hear it, he couldn't have corrected them. But if he did hear it, then he's guilty because he didn't correct them. And he said, yes, I've heard him, accepting their praise. And then do you see what Jesus does? He says, have you not read? Now that's kind of funny. It's like holy sarcasm. They're scribes. That's all they do is read, they write, they translate, they read, they read, they read. Folks, this is a warning to us. You can read all day long and not read. I mean, you can read these things and not understand them. He says, have you not read? I mean, what what a rebuke to the religious leadership. And then what he does is he quotes Psalm 8. And Psalm 8 begins with, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens. From the mouths of infants and babes, you have prepared praise. What's Jesus saying? Jesus is saying is that he is the revealed glory of God to the nations. And those kids get it. I'm Psalm 8. Those kids are praising me because I'm the revelation of God's glory to the nations. And they're shouting out, Hosanna to the son of David. And you have missed it. So the church is to be a church that treasures Christ above all things. That Christ is supreme to us. We don't make much of anything except Christ in this church. But let me remind you, to treasure Christ, to be in awe of Christ, demands humility. It demands humility. Why is it that the lame and the blind and the children are seeing everything that nobody else sees? All the religious, all the the well-trained, all the wise, all the intelligent, they're not praising him. Why is it the insignificant and the weak and the infirmed giving praise? It's kind of like kids at Christmas. When kids open presents at Christmas, it's a blast. They get excited about anything. They just get so excited. We're so much more staid and so much more sober in our response. The pride have trouble being in awe of anything. When you struggle with pride, it's hard to be in awe. It's hard to be zealous. You want to be contained and controlled. You don't want to act like you're too excited. And yet the church that Jesus is rectifying is modeled for us by a bunch of infants. Infants are your teachers here, people. They're teaching you how to worship, to sing praise, Hosanna to the Son of David. They were shouting it. They weren't saying it like, Hosanna to the Son of David. They were shouting it out, this excitement, the zeal. So we have Jesus. He's purifying a temple worship, and he's ridding that wicked heart posture that many of us bring in, that we struggle with, and he's rectifying it by reminding us we're a house of prayer. We're a house of the nations. Do not underestimate the influence that we have in the different ethnicities that we do have here. I've prayed for years that we would be a church that is multicultural, but that is a tough pull. And also that we would be a house that would treasure, that would adore, that would be in awe. Awe is a good word for the Christian, that we would be in awe of Christ. So let's take a few minutes now, and and please, you can leave your Bibles open. Tendency is when I go to prayer, we close our Bibles. Leave your, sometimes when one or two of you would read a scripture or a passage or two, it's, it's beautiful to hear. It fills my soul with life, and I know others around you. So let's take a few minutes, and we're going to pray. And, and you can be 
asking God for grace as a church to be the church that God would have us be. Uh, you could speak uh, a word of thanks to God for his grace in your life, in this church, and in, in your family's life. Um, and then Luke is going to close us in a minute. I'll begin, and then you all can pray, and, uh, and then Luke will close us. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the grace that you have given to us in Christ. Father, we ask for the grace to be like these children, uh, that we might give such praise to you, that we would be in awe, that we would treasure you, that we would see your son uh, as glorious, treasure to behold. Pray this in the name of Jesus.